Welcome to the Wounds of the Faithful podcast, brought to you by DSW Ministries. Your host is singer, songwriter, speaker, and domestic violence advocate, Diana Winkler. She is passionate about helping survivors in the church heal from domestic violence and abuse and trauma. This podcast is not a substitute for professional counseling or qualified medical help. Now, here is Diana. Welcome back to part two of my one-year anniversary celebration. I hope that you enjoyed last week's festivities. We are going to start out the episode with another new song that I recorded for my new album. It's called, I Know the Plans. It's a song based on Jeremiah 29, 11. Enjoy.
I hope that you enjoyed that song. That verse is definitely one of my favorite verses and the verse for my ministry. Now, I found out from the last episode that I have to either talk faster or talk less to get everybody in a reasonable time frame. <laughs> so I'm going to try. <laughs> so let's dive into this week's guest highlights. Episode number seven, we have Ken Keese. Ken Keese talks about how to live our lives on purpose instead of letting life happen to us. He shares his journey of growing up on a dairy farm and realizes that this was not the life he wanted for himself. He talks about his family originating from Hungary and the history of abuse that his parents endured. His inspiring story continues as he overcomes a learning disability of dyslexia and finally fulfills his dream of becoming an international author. He gives us very practical and tangible steps to get out of the hole that we find ourselves in and gain the courage to achieve our dreams. At the end of the show, Ken gives away a free copy of his book, 
the quest for purpose. So you'll definitely want to listen to this episode and take advantage of this free offer. His other books on his website, KenKeese.com, is, let's see, Why Aren't You More Like Me? Discovering the Secrets to Understanding Yourself and Others. To Deliberate Leadership, Creating Success Through Personal Style. So be sure to check that out and listen to what Ken has to say. Give it up. Offense is a choice. So, you know, we talked about trauma and we talked about forgiveness, but being offended is also a choice. You know, Mm -hmm. Dr. David Burns' work around uh, trauma, if you've ever read his book, um, Feel Good, is, I mean, it's it's got about 500 pages at four-point font, is that my response is always a choice. Yes. And even Dr. Gottman in his work around relationships is that once I get over 100 beats per minute, non-athletic, I'm no longer rational. Well, that's where we have trauma, we have abuse, we have uh, crazy things that happen. One of our number one um, constituents we serve is law enforcement. So uh, Dr. Anderson, who founded the company, was a criminology professor. And then one of my co-authors, Dr. Mitch Davidi, teaches law enforcement officers emotional intelligence. What's the most dangerous situation for law enforcement to go into? Domestic dispute. Yes. Why? Because people are irrational. Mm -hmm. So I've let myself get ramped up. I'm now biologically, I'm no longer in control of my emotions. Mm -hmm. And now I will say and do things that will regret. And and now I'm completely out of control. I mean, there was this situation that happened in Palm Springs a couple of two, three years ago where uh, there was an abusive situation carrying on. The officers broke up. The couple started to contain him. And then she got a gun out and killed both officers. So... So that's why officers in these environments, they said, you have to watch your back because it's completely unpredictable as Mm -hmm. part of it. Give like a list of actionable things that they can do right now. Mm. Now, just before I do it so that we don't miss you, I have a gift for everybody. Yes. And so I'm going to give you uh, access to the e-copy. Sorry, that's kind of just reflecting uh, of my, uh, the quest for purpose book. And the get that is go to my speaker site, which is KenKeys, K-E-N-K-E-I-S dot com slash faithful. I don't know where we got that uh, name from, but, and you'll, in that hidden URL, and of course you'll be able to put it in the show notes, Diana, as well, mm-hmm. is that you'll be able to go there and then download the e-version of the book. What I am sometimes shocked at is that I give away this book is that the amount of people who don't opt in to get the book. It is a roadmap, a step-by-step process to get clear about who and what and where and what you should be doing in your life and all components. And now it's going to take work. It's going to take time. But where are you going to be in six months if you don't do it? So uh, it's there. I spent six months going through this process with my coach, Mike McManus, you know, driving three hours each way when it wasn't pertinent. So when I think about actionable steps, and you think about people's lives, first of all, if you don't have a purpose in life, then your purpose is to find your purpose. And so that becomes the focus rather than trying to say, you know, uh, I better be doing this or just take a breath and allow yourself time and space. I've noticed that the Holy Spirit is never frantic. 
<laughs> you know, he's on time and he's moving forward, but he's never fran frantic. And so uh, chaos is not from him. So just be peaceful, be quiet, and start paying attention and asking yourself this question. If you're doing what you're doing right now, in all contexts of your life, 20 years from now, is that okay? And if you say no, then that obviously infers change. So what is it that you're going to move towards? Don't freak out. Don't try to do it all. Uh, I mean, if I'm trying to be a marathon runner uh, this morning, and then I said I'm going to run and do a marathon tonight, I'm going to be dead. Just, I got to train for it. Yeah. So life is the same. The other one, Diana, is, is get a group that's going to support you. Like, look around and don't judge the five closest friends, but say, are the five closest friends in a space that are going to help you to go where you need to go? And then the other thing is, is that life takes effort. If you get finished watching the show and do nothing and do no action steps, then you're going to have the same thing tomorrow. So what are the steps that you can take? Start moving towards it download the book. It's got a complete roadmap. And the other thing, we'll make sure that my contact information is there, Diana, is that if people have questions, reach out. I'll respond as, as best as I can in the time that's allotted there. But I'll respond to you to be able to say, hey, how can we help you? Or call you and your ministry and some mm -hmm. of the coaching that is available there. So that'll get you started. And again, don't try to do it all overnight. Just take one step at a time. The research shows is that if you try to uh, three things at once to change it, you have about a 15% likelihood of implementing it. And a 75% success rate if it's just one thing. So one thing at a time, progress forward and keep listening to Diana's podcast shows. And that should be the other step that they do too. Our next guest, Doug Setter, was on episode number six. And his book is called One Last Victim. He is, his book is above me here on the shelf. Doug Sitter gives us some advice on how not to be a victim in today's world. He starts sharing about his background in the military, his martial arts training, and the inspiration for his book, One Less Victim. He weaves stories of abuse and PTSD that are all too common in the military with his own tale of escaping the clutches of a pedophile. He ends with giving us practical safety tips that listeners can incorporate into their lives right now. So if you're from a military background or martial arts background, you will especially enjoy the stories. I had the idea to record this episode in my martial arts room, which was very echoey didn't have very good acoustics, so it also didn't have very good lighting. So I'm sorry about the sound quality and or the lighting, but it was definitely worth to hear what Doug had to say on our interview. So listen up here. Self-trust, self that's the big thing, it's self-trust. I know I know as a kid, at one time, geez, I have flashbacks now, I, I, I remember going to the bus station and some guy offered me a ride, and, and I, I, my head, I said, this doesn't happen. Why would, you know, but I said, ah, I was tired. And, and sure enough, I got in the car, we're going over, there's a, a bridge, and then he started coming on to me, grabbed my leg and whatnot, and I just, yeah. I said, well, no, pull over here, and I bailed out right away. But I was 15, and, mm. 
you know, the last thing you want to do is tell my mother that, you know, I almost, you know, basically a homosexual assault. Like, you know, I just, you already have your self-doubts as a kid. Mm-hmm. And, and so it was really, I didn't say anything. I, I mentioned some friends and, and uh, they kind of laughed it off. But uh, right away, there's, there's, uh, well, what were you doing taking rides from strangers? Blah, blah, blah. You know, there's all these things that you're scared and ashamed of. Well, they blame you for what the perpetrator exactly. did. Yes. Yeah. And, and there is that feeling. You, you often, you know, um, I mean, I've talked to people, you know, in the bar fight, and they well, what did I do wrong? Is this, this, this? Well, no, no. The, the, perp, the predator was there already. Mm-hmm. They woke up that morning, decided they're going to try to hurt someone. So you have to, don't go running around with high heels flashing. I mean, you're a target. You can't, mm-hmm. you can't run fast with high heels, right? Mm-mm. I, mean, I couldn't. I don't know how they do it. Girls do it, but uh, that's <clears throat> have a way out. Have if I'm going to go to a party, and we've all been to teenage parties, and you and I know there's always some jerk that shows up to cause trouble. Mm-hmm. Go sleep in your friend's car or your car. Lock the door if you had too much to drink. Go. No, don't go any strange rooms. Have an exit plan. Very smart. And out. You get it. Oh, how are you getting home today? Oh, I don't know. No, I've got I've got the extra twenty bucks in my wallet, my back pocket. I get the cab. I'm out of there. You know. And the big one: learn to say no. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Learn how to say no. Say no and practice it, and then you're gonna disappoint people. So what? You know? yep. And say it really loud. <laughs> yeah. No, I don't want it. Hey, not today. So Doug is also a fitness expert, and you can find him on secondwindbodyscience.com. He's got lots of other book on here for sale about personal fitness training, nutrition, books like Fit Femme After 50. So... So check it out. Okay, we've got our next guest on episode 30 and 31, Latre Wilson. So two-part series. How do you break the generational cycle of abuse? So growing up in Oakland, California, she was raised in a Christian home as a preacher's kid. Latre was not sheltered from the realities of life. She talks openly and honestly how she got involved with many abusive men, including the father of her autistic son. We remember how Just Say No to Drugs on the 80s slogan affected our lives and discuss how we can talk to our kids about sex, drugs, and making good choices. Come and hear her story about her high-risk pregnancy, how her son stopped breathing several times, and the miracle of his life. Have you ever been stalked by a former boyfriend? Well, it was Latre's living nightmare. She describes her history of relationships with abusive men and the process it took to finally leave. She shares the joys and challenges of raising her genius autistic son and also caring for her mother, 
When she was in college, she was diagnosed with dyslexia, but she never let it stop from reaching her goals. After years of being done with God and church, she comes back into the Father's loving arms. So join us again as we listen to Latre's incredible journey towards healing and peace. So by the time he got tested, uh, which was at five years old, around five years old, they could not find him on the spectrum. They just knew he was on the spectrum. And we're in the doctor's office uh, at the testing site and a team of doc another team of doctors come to me and ask me, well, what did you do? Because we don't see him, we can't find him on the spectrum. And I was like, well, is this a good thing? Because the autism world is new to me. So you have to tell me, is this a good thing? And they're like, yeah. And I'm like, oh. <laughs> He's got his own spectrum. <laughs> he has his own spectrum. Like, um, uh, he... He, he can hold a conversation with you at, at five years old. Like, you talk to him, he will talk right back to you. He could read, write, he could, he could do all the things that they said a kid with autism could not do. So is he like a savant? Basically. Wow. Basically. I call him right now, he's my baby genius. <laughs> <laughs> I call him my baby genius. He is, he, you have to, you, you will have to be in the, in the, in a room with him to, to understand why I call him that. Like he, you, cause you don't see autism. I don't see autism. Um, and others don't see autism. They're, they're like something that's off. They don't know what it is. And I have to say, oh, he has autism. They're like, what? <laughs> yeah I've, I've had some friends with autistic children um uh -huh. so i've had some exposure have you yeah. ever seen the good doctor yeah i love I really, that show. I really like the show so it's very I, interesting I, I don't agree with how they have him talking because he sounds like a robot yeah and, we've, we've mentioned that too and my son said <laughs> my son when i, when I introduced this show to my son he was like i do not sound like that <laughs> no but he's probably just as smart as the doctor so yes no and it's so, just a tv show it's just a tv show but i did i can identify with some of the some of the quirky the quirkiness and some of the serious things of of having uh autism and how difficult it can be for for them to live in this world. And so um, I'm very passionate about uh, autism and uh, especially the parent. Um, at, I was at a, I was young when I found out my son had autism and autism wasn't something that was uh, broadcast like it is broadcast now. Like it's it's everywhere. Everybody got a kid with autism. You got a kid with autism. You got a kid with autism. Everybody yeah, in the '80s, you know, <laughs> you had autism. You were just the weird kid in the neighborhood. There exactly. was no exactly. And so now that it is definitely out there, there are resources that 
I didn't have that. I'm so jealous of these parents. I'm like, wait, 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 wait. You can what? No, oh, come on. We don't want to be jealous. We can we be happy for them, right? Yeah, I'm definitely happy. It's just like, wait a minute, wait a minute. I didn't have that. It was just resources. Like, they have so many resources for parents now. I didn't have resources. It was a secret club. It was a secret yeah. club that you just happened to, happen to join and Parents are so afraid to say anything, we don't have parents to talk to. And so our normal kid, you know, like my, my like my son like to say, the regular kids, the regular kids, parents, they they don't understand what ASD parents you know, are going through. And so our parenting is definitely different. And so the conversation is different when we talk to each other. Right. It's, it's the empathy that we feel for one another and it we feel it because no one really understands what we go through and no one really understands the type of parenting we have to do in order for our kid to not have a meltdown or our yes. kid not to, you know, um, to succeed. I, I, I would say that, but um, just the littlest thing, the littlest thing can just throw their whole little thing off. Oh, and yeah. it's taking you three or four hours just to recover for, for, for because I, I, I cut a, uh, the sandwich from. Right, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and, and I, I cut the sandwich wrong. Now I, I got to recover from a meltdown, a five-hour meltdown. So that's like you know when the good doctor, he, you know, his roommate uh, rearranges the canned goods in the wrong way. It just yeah. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. It's the same thing. He puts the toilet <laughs> yeah. paper on the wrong way. It just <laughs> it's just toilet paper, people. But not to them. Not to them. is called My Last 20. And you can find her website at destinedtobeblast.com. Also get her book on any bookseller online. I will have all this in the show notes for you. Episode 48. Our guest is Rob Decker. Sometimes in our lives, circumstances seem so hopeless that ending it all seems to be the only solution to our pain. And that happened to Rob Decker when he decided to end it all by jumping out of a third-story window and surviving the fall. We will find out about his childhood abuse, being raised by parents who were addicts, his path of self-destruction, and making bad choices in relationships. You will hear about the series of events that led up to his wake-up call to bring him to Jesus and his endless grace. Today, God uses Rob to help others overcome hopelessness, addiction, suicide with his numerous ministries. 
to find out more about Rob Decker and his story called Falling Into You on his website, robdeckerspeaks.com. And here is a little bit of our conversation we had. And it was our biggest, like, the thing that we thought about, thought about was my drinking. So mm -hmm. for the very first nine months of our relationship, it was all about my drinking. And I eventually got behind the wheel of her car, intoxicated, crashed her car. And wow. Yeah, I ran from the scene of the crime, fell into a creek, got bloody, got wet, hid under a house. And here I am under a house, you know, like, man, God, look at where I'm at right now. <laughs> you know, I was the guy that jumped out of a window, tried to take his life, was told he was never going to walk again. I'm working out all the time. I have a job. I have this wonderful young lady in my life. Like, I have a pretty great life. And here I am throwing it away for the alcohol. Because yeah. I, yeah. I'm like, I've chosen to, to drink alcohol instead of hand the rest of my problems to you. And in that moment, I told God that if he bailed me out of that situation and he didn't have to, because we don't need, he doesn't need to negotiate with me. But if he, if, if he bailed me out of that situation, um, I would marry Alyssa and I would, uh, never drink ever again. And so that happened almost 10 years ago. I've never picked up the bottle again. And what I truly believe happened under that house needed to happen, like jumping out of the window needed to happen. Um, I believe I truly repented. I think I understood the magnitude of God's grace and his love for me in my life. And I, I just knew I didn't need the alcohol, that he was good enough for me. And so you know, unfortunately, when you hear the word repentance, uh, it's been, you know, um, pretty tarnished yeah. uh, through religion. Um, but really what repentance is, is just having that, that moment of this is wrong and I can't do it anymore. It's you know, about it, face. Yeah. A hundred percent. It's nothing, it's nothing so crazy. It's just something has to change, you know, and having, the right heart before that. So, you know, that happened. And, and so, you know, the moment I quit drinking, more healing took place. You know, God now was allowed in because I wasn't blocking him out with the alcohol to um, really work on the deeper childhood stuff that I had and all the other trauma. And my, you know, at the time that I was drinking, I was struggling because I had just hurt myself. I was told I wasn't going to get to go to the gym I was doing really well at a job and I was crushing it, but I was so performance driven. You know, I, it was like the, you know, with alcoholics or addicts, it's like more is better. Really what it is, is I had to prove to my dad constantly how valuable I was by performing at such a high level. Um, and I mean, even though the reality of that situation was, that would never happen. That was how I approached my life. And so I was getting so deep into performing at my new job that it provided like a whole nother level of stress for me. And um, now God had an opportunity to work on that for me. Like, okay, well, this isn't about your worldly father and you needing to perform, right? Um, but I'm just, it was like 
lesson after lesson, healing trauma after trauma, and giving me wisdom on top of wisdom. And so I've spent the last 15 years really weeding through the previous 30, right? And trying to unpack all that and heal all that. So, you know, um, yeah, I mean, we can fast forward to what I do now. You know, I'm a health and fitness coach and uh, I'm an addiction recovery coach as well. I work with at-risk youth. I run a gym out of my house and, you know, I'm a family man now. And, you know, I have a ministry as well. So I basically try to wear the hat of everything that I ever needed. (laughs) (laughs) I tell you, listening to your story, I mean, I think we've, we've all gone through God taking us to the woodshed more than once to get a, get a hold of us because we're so hard headed and stubborn as a mule. Oh, you didn't learn the lesson the first time. Well, we're going to go back to the woodshed and we're going to learn another lesson today, (laughs) but there is grace and forgiveness from the Lord. And uh, we get, he's the God of second chances. Amen. Yeah. Redemption is my middle name. (laughs) He has redeemed my life like no one's business and he continues to bless it. And, you know, I, I truly understand his grace. I mean, he's got so much of it. Um, Not that I ever want to abuse it because I, you know, there were times in my walk where I did abuse his grace, but, you know, um, he even bestowed grace on me then too. And, I'm just so grateful for everything that he's pulled me out of. And now I have a chance to give that back to the people and share my story and show people what fixes all that stuff. You know, what transforms, what, what truly transforms people and transforms lives. Okay. Episode 43 is Megan Kokorin. And how can an abuse advocate not recognize the red flags of abuse in her own relationships. Well, that's what happened to Megan. She is from the Secret Garden podcast. She shares her experiences in the emergency room of comforting sexual assault victims and ensuring that the collection of evidence is completed accurately. Find out what the connection is with the show Law & Order. Megan reveals What is the process during a rape kit and what happens to the kit afterwards? And how we can advocate for ourselves and our loved ones during this traumatic time. We also discussed what are the characteristics of a narcissist and how a narcissist does not think like everyone else. And we end with Megan's own harrowing story of her ex-husband and Dating tips for breaking free of the grip that the narcissist has over us. It was great to connect with Megan, a fellow advocate, and you can find out more about her on the Divine Self website. And she has a YouTube channel, and her podcast is called The Secret Garden, available on all podcast channels. So listen to what Megan has to say here. Um, you're our resident narcissist expert this time. So 
I am. I am. I don't know if I, uh, it's so funny. I actually just just um, did a podcast a couple of days ago with somebody else and was like, oh, a narcissist expert. And I was like, I don't know if that's a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of how you, how you look at it, right? Yeah. I was like, well, you know, you got to go, you got to go through the, you know, the, the PhD training, which meaning, you know, in a relationship with a narcissist to, to get that, that uh, become an expert, I guess. So um, yeah, I, I'm happy to, to guide people and get them through it. But uh, yeah, it's a, it's a brutal journey to get here. <laughs> yeah. We were both abused by narcissists. And so tell the listeners who aren't familiar with what exactly narcissism is. Sure. So I think one of the most unfortunate things in society today is that we say, oh, you know, he's such a narcissist. And that's not what we're talking about. Um, narcissists are people with personality disorders. And there's actually four different types of personality disorders. There's borderline personality disorder, narcissism, sociopath, and psychopath. And they all are on a spectrum. And pretty much the same trait that all of them have is they lack empathy. They don't have the empathy gene. And um, when you come into the wake of a narcissist, um, it's pretty, it's pretty brutal. They spin you into a web and abuse you. And, and really what they do is we call it extracting narcissistic supply. So it's really like their, their drug of choice is, is abusing you. And they actually have a chemical reaction to that abuse that makes them feel in control and feel powerful. Um, and their goal is to always extract that, that, you know, that from you. So yeah. And it's really just because they lack empathy. So they're willing to do anything to get that narcissistic, narcissistic supply. Well, in my experience, they're, they're good at faking empathy in front of other people. Yes putting on a show for the right people. They're very good. They're very good chameleons. They will, they can put on any show anywhere for anybody that's watching and convince everybody else of a totally different story than what's going on behind closed doors in your home. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's definitely part of my story and my experience. Now you're relatively new to being a survivor and of an abusive relationship and you're still dealing with that. Can you share a little bit about your story? Sure. So I actually started out as, um, I'm a certified crisis intervention counselor, and I got that in 2008 in New York City. Um, and I'm affiliated with uh, Mount Sinai Hospitals, which used to be St. Luke's and Roosevelt Hospital. And I was um, did domestic and sexual violence advocacy. So I know a lot about abuse and advocating and trauma intervention. And then I fell victim myself to domestic violence. Mm -hmm. um, but before it ever became physical, it was very mentally and emotionally abusive. And um, I didn't understand what was going on. Even though I'm certified in this, I didn't understand that I was being abused. And it didn't, it took me going to therapy one day, even like I said, before I, it became physical for the therapist to look at me and say, hey, you're a domestic violence survivor and, or victim. And she's like, this is a domestic violence relationship. And I was like, no, uh, no, I'm not in the hospital. He didn't hit me. And she's like, no, this is an abusive relationship. And, um, mm -hmm. And that rattled me to the core. And then I 
came across a book called Dodging Energy Vampires by Dr. Christian Northrup. And I listened to it on Audible and I literally pulled my car over to the side of the road and cried for an hour and was like, this is what I'm, this is it. She knows what a narcissist is. And so she calls an energy Mm. vampire a narcissist. And I felt so validated because I thought I was going crazy, to be honest with you. He Mm. had me convinced so much that the problem was me and that I needed to fix everything. But Mm. the bar kept going higher and higher and higher and higher and I couldn't fix it. And Um, and I was exhausted and I felt like there was something wrong with me and I was broken and, um, I just felt totally validated when I heard that, you know, he was possibly a narcissist. And then I dove down the rabbit hole of narcissism and watched obsessively watched YouTube videos and that saved my life and, um, helped me kind of understand what was going on and find the courage to eventually one day leave. And I left in February of 2019. Our next fabulous guest is the Reverend Dr. Marsha Ledford on episode 37. We had a great conversation talking about how can we be more like Jesus in this world of pain, suffering, and evil? Is it our responsibility as Christians to care for the oppressed? And she guides us in answering these kind of questions with empathy and compassion. She candidly shares her upbringing in the Baptist church, her divine call to preach, and becoming a civil rights attorney. She was once given an ultimatum by her church to choose between her faith and who she is. She has tirelessly shown Christ's love by fighting for the rights of immigrants sex traffic victims, multiple cultures, races, and the LGBT community. She gives us practical advice on how to deal with a family member who has come out with grace and love. Also, she explains why we shouldn't talk with loved ones about politics and religion. Our interview is filled with powerful storytelling, inspirational scripture verses, and valuable resources to change your community for Christ. And Marcia offers a free course for all of the listeners. I really enjoyed my conversation with Marcia. She has a book that she is working on you can read her blog on Political Theology Matters, and we'll definitely have her back on the show when her book is released. You can see her in action on social media. She is actively out there on the front lines fighting for rights for those that need God's grace and God's love. So here's some of my conversation with Reverend Dr. Marsha Ledford. Now, your faith intersects your social justice missions and areas of immigration, LGBT, racial equality, and sex trafficking. Yes. Now, we talk a lot about sex trafficking here on this podcast, so I would really like to hear uh, about what you think in your experience with sex traffic victims? Well, uh, that's an open-ended question. And so <laughs> I'll, start, I'll start by saying um, when I was in seminary in, in Berkeley, California, I became 
aware of an organization called SAGE, which helps traffic, trafficked women get out of their situation and rebuild their lives and, mm -hmm. and move on. And they're quite an extraordinary group. And I learned so much. I was very moved by the stories that I heard um, and the services that they offer. And uh, my field ministry, when you're a seminarian, you have to work in various churches to get experience at, at the congregational level. And mine was in Oakland. And uh, a lot of trafficking goes on there, lots of prostitution. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's, it's pretty bad. So I, I became sort of introduced in some ways to a lot about what goes on with sex trafficking. We have not developed the mission as much yet as we plan to, but we, we plan to provide resources. I think one of the most important things that we as uh, members of society can do to help eradicate trafficking is to learn the signs you know, learn what to look for when you're uh, at a restroom on the interstate and you see a woman who's undernourished and scared and maybe doesn't speak any English at all and doesn't know where she is and is quite clearly, you know, um, something is clearly off. Mm -hmm. um, that's when, and then you kind of watch and see what kind of a vehicle she gets in and, you know, is, is she in a van? Is she in something that transports a lot of people? those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. um, and you call the police. Um, and, you know, you don't get directly involved, but you just, we are all, we're out there all over the place. Uh, the traffickers cannot get away from us, the public, you mm -hmm. know, because we're everywhere. And if we teach people to be more aware right. of the signs, um, we can do a lot to help law enforcement uh, catch these guys and shut them down and get these women freed. And and when I say that, I'm talking specifically about women being sex, well, women and men being sex trafficked and children, uh, but also uh, laborers, you know, people yes. who are being trafficked as uh, basically human slaves. So um, it's a really important area that we're, you know, getting into, um, and I also, I think domestic violence is also something we need to be much, much more aware of and look mm -hmm. for the signs of battering when we're out and about. Um, I had my collar on one day and a woman came up to me and told me that um, she was in an abusive relationship and she needed help. Wow. And um, uh, and so I got her some phone numbers and, and we, we got her some assistance immediately uh, and fortunately, I was in my community and I knew who to call and all of that. Um, and, you know, it's not usually that obvious it was because I had on a clerical collar. But at the same time, um, people who are in trouble, in danger, are looking for an out and they're looking for somebody to notice. Yes. Just to be um, a human being. Exactly. I saw a video of a woman who was being abused um, and she had to take her pet to the hospital, to the vet, and uh, her abuser was with her, and um, she was able to slip a note to the vet tech, and she said, he's got a gun, 
and I'm scared to death. Good for her. And those women, God love them, called the cops and got him in there and got him out of there and took that gun away from him. So it it takes all of us, you know, uh, to participate in eradicating this kind of abuse. Yeah, just say something. Just say, if you see something, say something. Exactly. Well, most people think of sex trafficking trafficking as overseas in Asian countries, but it happens right here in our backyard. It happens right under our noses. And Mm -hmm. I live in Michigan at the intersection of uh, I-75 and 8090. 8090 goes across the country and 75 goes from Michigan to Florida. Mm -hmm. Um, That's one of the most... uh, you know, it's one of the greatest hubs for exchanging trafficked persons in the country. It yes. intersects right at the heartland, east and west and north and south. Yeah, I'm like uh, a couple hours from the Mexican border. And so we get a ton of trafficking victims here. Mm-hmm. And we we had the Super Bowl here once. Right. We have the PGA here every year. We've got a ton of golf courses and People don't realize there's a huge amount of sex trafficking going on with the Super Bowl and the, oh, yes. the sports events like PGA. I've seen it. I've heard that the Super Bowl Sunday is the most heavily sex trafficked day of the year. Dave Ebert is my next guest from episode number 12. Dave Ebert is from Gifts for Glory Ministries. And Dave shares his past struggles with depression self-worth, and thoughts of suicide. He has captivating stories of how he met the Lord, found his calling into improv comedy, and how he helps victims of sex trafficking to heal using improv classes. This was a fascinating conversation that I had with him. We talked about a lot of things, particularly, I think we talked about Robin Williams and how his suicide had rocked the comedy world as well as as the rest of the world. How can you be so successful and look happy on the outside, but then take your own life? We talk a lot about that. We talk about other things, but I love how God uses Dave with something like improv, something fun, is a healing tool for those that have suffered trauma. Listen to what Dave has to say on some of our conversation here. So you can um, definitely use comedy to heal people Mm -hmm. in their pain. And you got connected with uh, Salt and Light coalition so tell us more about that sure uh salt and light coalition is an organization that works with uh, women who have survived sex trafficking uh, many of the women that they serve uh, were sold into trafficking by mm. their parents at a young age so many of them either have a very short if or maybe a non-existent childhood to, to uh, draw from so they're very stunted in many areas as far as emotions, uh, uh, especially the ability now to trust people. And so, and most of them obviously have been hurt and used and abused by men. 
Mm -hmm. So the fact that me as a guy was asked to come in and serve, the weight of that is not lost on me, but I also see the benefit because here is a man in a healthy relationship with his wife who is in a healthy relationship with the Lord who can come in and bring that as a model for these women to show that it is possible that not every single man is a creep that's going to hurt you. Right. And I I value that ability to, and that opportunity to bring that example uh, to them. And I teach improv as a way to improve their communication because uh, many of them, like I said, had are stunted either um, educationally, either they were, they had to drop out of school because they were doing what their handlers or pimp or whatever you want to call them were making them do. And so I go and help them improve communication, uh, find and develop their self-esteem because when you're learning improv and you're creating stuff together, you're starting to realize, wait, I have a voice. I have something to say. And the things that I say can be valuable. And that only helps to improve the self-esteem. So they start realizing that all the stuff that I've been through in the past is my past and all the work that I'm doing now to get back on my feet and rebuild my life. I'm worth it because I have something to say. I have something to contribute. So we do that through improv. And at the end of the day, they get an hour where they can laugh like kids either for the first time or laugh like kids again, because, and and I don't say these things to brag on me. Mm -hmm. God put me in this position. There was, there's been several times where the women have, or a couple of the women have come in and you could see that they are literally carrying their world on their back. The burdens are there. The brow is furrowed. The, you could see in their eyes that they're waiting for somebody to say that one word so that they can explode on them. Mm -hmm. And part of what they have to do is they have to participate even if they're not feeling it. So they, they still get in the circle. They still participate in the games and you can see literally that facade crack and fall. You literally see them crack up and within five minutes of participating, the burden is gone the the fierceness in their eyes the the anger or the frustration or the hurt it it fades away and they get to forget that and realize that there's hope that there's something bigger than what they're wrestling with in that moment and that has been such a huge blessing for me to be a part of that for the last couple of years and um and like i said it's it's such a blessing to to be a man in that position to kind of be an ambassador literally an ambassador for christ to show that it's okay to to trust again and i and i love doing that episode 35 is norm Vilsch. is there a difference between combat ptsd and first responder ptsd according to norm Vilsch. Your body recognizes them as the same thing. In my conversation with Norm, we hear about his father fighting during World War II and losing almost his entire family during the bombings. True to his grandfather's generation and culture, he never spoke about his war trauma. Fast forward to Norm's service as a police officer 
when he was diagnosed with a painful disease. We talk about how he went down the slippery slope with painkillers, hiding his condition with fellow police officers, and making poor choices. Find out what happens when he gets sent to prison, the lessons he's learned, and what God was doing in his heart through it all. The Norm offers real and practical solutions for those suffering from PTSD. So he obtained a master's degree in theology and counseling, and then a doctorate in Christian counseling. He went on to become a registered addiction counselor, and he's in the process of becoming a chaplain with the Assemblies of God Church. So his book, Healing a Broken Heart, Christ-Centered Healing of Trauma, is available on his website, ChristCenteredHealing.com. You can find all of his resources there. Here's my conversation with Norm Vielsch. And he showed us the graves of these young German soldiers, and some of them were 16. You know, they probably had fake IDs, but it, it is a really beautiful cemetery. And uh, yes, we went to all the other places like uh, Colville-sur-la-Mer, the American cemetery. Um, but that's what I immediately thought of when I heard about your family's history and um, how your father fought during World War II on the German side. So just for openers, can you um, tell us a little bit about your, your parents' story and your upbringing? Yeah, that story is my dad's. You know, yeah. his parents died at a very young age. He doesn't even know how they died, if it was cancer or what. You know, medical science wasn't too great back then. And he was orphaned basically at 15. So he had no place to go. And he joined the army. He lied about his age and joined the army. And mm. he, he didn't talk too much about his time in, in the army. I believe now it was because of his PTSD. He did, just didn't want to talk about it. But the things he did say was exactly the same thing. He didn't want to, but if you refused to fight, they would just execute you, you know, oh. if you didn't want to fight. So, but he did his, his, um, his, he helped the war effort for the Americans by kind of making sure that things didn't work well. He was on artillery and the, he always shipped the wrong artillery shells to the wrong guns and stuff because nobody wanted the war. Nobody oh, did. Wow. And um, then he got captured um, by the Americans. He was, I think it was six months in a prisoner of war camp and the Americans treated him real well. So that wasn't an issue, but, and my mom, she was also in the military and she was um, in the Netherlands, but during the, the war, um, allied bombers basically killed my whole family. I, I have wow. no one except my mom and dad. Well, my mom had a sister. I'm sorry. My mom had a sister. That was it. Mm -hmm. They lost their parents. They lost all the sisters and brothers. And so, like you said, it's, they were evil, but war is evil. I mean, yes. my whole family died during the war. And I didn't know it at the time, but I, I think all this stress, this, this trauma affected the, the family that we can't even comprehend. Because when they came here, they immigrated here in the 50s. And they had me in the um, early 60s. And they, they, they worked hard and they did, but they never talked about, they never showed love. They never showed any kind of 
positive emotions, right? And I think that's part of the symptoms of PTSD. Mm. Wow, that, that's an incredible story. Now, we, uh, we, we generally uh, associate PTSD with military service, you know, American sniper. Um, did your dad talk about PTSD in any way? No, he was the kind of guy who pull, pull yourself up with the bootstraps, you know, don't show emotion. You know, I mean, this is a, I'm only telling this to make an illustration, not, not to, to disrespect him, mm-hmm. but he was the kind of guy, and when I was 16, one of my close friends died in a motorcycle accident, and um, I was crying, you know, because that was really my first experience with death, and he came into my room and just was yelling at me, shut up, stop it, stop crying, men don't cry, mm-hmm. and when I couldn't stop, he basically beat me, <laughs> you know, Aww. men don't cry. And then I, I learned that at the police academy, it was the same kind of thing. So that was mm. a common thread amongst men of that generation and of, you know, the first responder culture. So it was, it was never shown emotion. Like I said, my mom and dad might've held hands, but I've never seen them kiss or show any kind of real emotion, even my mom. And wow. I believe that's from the, the trauma of, of war, but the trauma from war is the same as we can experience here, say, being a victim of a crime, a violent crime, or just being threatened by somebody. I mean, these are the same things. When you see something that's life-threatening, it can really affect you the rest of your life. Yes, exactly. Now, um, we're going to talk about first responder PTSD today. Um, Can you define what the difference between first responder PTSD is and how it is different from like a war combat zone PTSD? Well, I believe there is no difference Hmm. because you see the same things, right? When you're deployed um, in a combat zone, you see horrific things, you know, you see killings and shootings and and children that have been killed and you may even have to do some killing yourself. So that's only in a short time distance, right? I mean, there's been guys that have been deployed, you know, four or five times, but those deployments are generally six months. First responders, you know, police and fire, even um, ambulance drivers and even trauma room doctors, they see this during a whole career, 25, 30 year career. So it's cumulative and they see the same things. You know, I've seen many, many children um, killed I've, I've been involved in shootings. Thank God I've never had to shoot myself, but um, I've seen people die in, in shootings. I've seen people just shot and wounded, um, suicides that are just horrific scenes, uh, car mm. crashes that are horrific scenes, uh, trains versus pedestrians. I mean, the, these crime scenes or these um, death scenes stick with one forever. I mean, I still see every single one of them. When I close my eyes, I can picture every single one of them in vivid detail. Wow. And they keep you up at night, I'm sure. Yeah. Episode number five is Ashley. She was one of my first guests on the podcast. I needed somebody that would be first, besides my husband. And Ashley is someone that went through my Mending the Soul group. And so she agreed to come on the show and tell her story. 
Ashley is a mother of three special needs boys, a survivor of domestic abuse. She begins her story with her traumatic childhood and rebellious teenage years. She talks about how she met her husband and the progression of abuse over the years. She describes how the book, The Love Dare, played a part in her meeting the Lord. After suffering a debilitating childbirth experience, her eyes were opened to the reality of her abusive marriage and planned her escape with her three children. In this brutally honest and riveting story, Ashley shares her relationship with God, how she began the healing process, and gives advice to others who are going through abuse right now. I know that you'll be blessed by her story. And thank you, Ashley, for being the first one. So here is Ashley. And I was also getting so low physically that I knew I had to do something. My body was starting to react um, to all the stress and abuse, um, heart palpitations, just constantly tense, feeling like something's going to happen. And so I think all of those things and seeing the effect on our our kids that's when I decided just to let him know that I'm not okay with it and I'm trying to remember even we had a conversation and I let him know I think we need to be separated and at the time he agreed with me that we need to be separated but he, he wanted us to stay in relationship still even though we were separated but I knew in my head that I was Mm -mm. done but it was good to be that because that kind of started the process even though he thought that you know in his head he thought we would work it out eventually i think it started the process and we lived in separate places um and then it just has continued from there with filing divorce mm. so you're still in the middle of the divorce proceedings now right yes mm -hmm. what's your interactions been with him um through this proceedings it's been just on and off communication he that's with him he's not outrightly like um glaringly abusive especially in text messages that's never been how he is really it's more covert so the communication part except for about a year ago we had a situation where he wouldn't leave the house and um, that's when i stopped being able to let him be here with the kids but besides that, the communication has been minimal, thankfully. Um, it's more been through money that the abuse has continued. Um, and also through the legal proceedings, what he's asking for legally feels like abuse also. Um, yeah, so, he was like canceling credit cards and stuff yes, on you. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so it's those it's those like subtle, you know, under the radar where people won't notice really that that the abuse is still happening. Yeah, so you look like the bad guy because you're leaving mm -hmm. your husband, but he's like, you know, trying to sell the house out from under you and the kids and and cutting your credit cards and it's like, how are you going to feed the children? Where are they going to sleep? I mean, this, these are yeah. your children. It's insane. Yeah. yeah your spouse makes you look like or makes you feel like you've you've lost your mind or well 
like you said in the, the first time you left, well, maybe, maybe he's not that bad. Maybe oh. I'm crazy. Maybe it's not him. It's me. No, that's what they do. That's what they do is they make you question your sanity and the reality of the situation. Now we have Rosalie Janelle, episode 13. She has a podcast called The Good News Podcast. I was on her podcast and then I invited her to come on my podcast. That's what we do. We podcasters. So <laughs> she tells us of her close-knit Catholic family and Dominican roots. As she goes through her college years, she struggled with her faith, depression, lack of self-worth, and drinking. She entered into this abusive relationship and tried to leave twice after her boyfriend tried to kill her. Find out how she found the Lord, got free of her abuser, and is now loving and serving the Lord. This is a bit of a hard story to listen to, but it's it's necessary, and she is so brave for telling her story and starting her podcast. You can listen to her podcast anywhere you can listen. You can listen to her podcast on any of the available platforms. So please listen to some of Rose's story that we had together. And, you know, before it was really difficult for me to explain this portion of my story because I couldn't do it without guilt or shame because that's what the enemy tries to, you know, kind of tries to keep us in shame and secrecy. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> but, I mean, in my relationship with my ex, I, have, I, I became unfaithful um, and little did I know then because I didn't understand then why I was seeking other men and I was you know seeking attention from other guys I mean it all ties to for me it all ties to the fact that I um I had a really low self-esteem and my self-worth was pro probably on the ground again I didn't know God I didn't really have a relationship with him I like I was saying I was going to church but I was just going through the motions because it's what I knew to do and I was going to a Christian church at this time but um it's just based on the foundation that I had from growing up in that Catholic church and I was I just knew to go through the motions I didn't really understand that I needed to practice a relationship with God <clears throat> so even though I was going to church while I was in this relationship I didn't know God enough to know the love that he had for me um, and therefore make better decisions so I saw other men I saw um, attention from particularly this one other guy, and I got really involved with him while I was with my ex. Um, and ultimately, th that was something that made the abuse worse um, mm -hmm. because my ex found out about it. I was sleeping, and he Ooh. just woke me up and dragged me out of the bed because um, he saw the text messages from the other guy. So alone, I was like, Oh my goodness, I'm alone. No one's going to know what happened to me if this man does something to me today. You know, he got, he was violent, but then also he was violent towards himself. He tried to, um, he tried to hold me hostage by basically telling 
me that he was going to kill himself. He took a, a knife and, mm-hmm. and we were in the kitchen for over an hour. And I was trying to try and deescalate the situation. I'm abused me before. And that I was kind of at that breaking point. You know, he's like, I, th- I think you're going to turn me in. His brother, who lived the state over, got there. He de-escalated the situation. He got, you know, he got him out of the house. He moved everything out that day. I ultimately went to the police station. I got a restraining order that day. But that wasn't the end, you know. Um, For me, I couldn't, I don't know you know, my definition of love was messed up back then. So I thought that I was still in love with him. Um, so it wasn't even like four days or five days later that I, I went back to the courthouse and I dropped a restraining order so that I could be with him again. Because wow. I thought that, you know, it was a mistake and he was, and I I was guilt, I was feeling so guilty because of my um, my unfaithfulness. So I was like, I felt like I hurt him. I didn't even, I disregarded all the, everything that he did to me. And I just was like, well, I hurt him. I have to go back and, and help him. And that just um, blows my mind that you would go back to fix his problems, which I think, you know, and I'm sure you agree with me. This just makes it worse. You going well, back after all of that. Mm-hmm. Because you felt guilty, which was misplaced guilt. Okay, that's it's great that you acknowledged um, that you made a mistake, but um, that doesn't that doesn't cancel out his abusive behavior. Absolutely, and I thought it did. That's it. I love the word that you, that you used, canceled. You know, for me, that's what I, th- I thought. It was like, all right, well, I did this, so he did that, and um, and of course, like I said, going back to what I said earlier, I th- believed all the things that he told me about me. Mm-hmm. I believed that I that that's what I deserved, um, and so I didn't see it as I didn't view it as an issue or a problem. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, when did you finally? come to your senses and say, I've had enough. I'm at rock bottom. I've got to get out of this relationship. I mean, for good. Yeah. um, It didn't come by my own, you know, choice. Um, and And I say that because a lot of people think that, you know, you always just get to walk out of a abusive relationship or, or you just choose to go. And that's not the case. Um, I I went back to him and ultimately we had a lot of issues up until the last time that I saw him. Um, and I was still being unfaithful. I was still seeking attention from other men. And so again, at this point, he's not trusting of me. He's still looking through my phone. He's following me at this point um, to everywhere that I go. And um, on the last occasion we went to a party um and we went back to his house after the party and we were both drunk and he went through my phone and he saw um a text message from the other guy and basically that's when he that that's the night that he tried to kill me he um it was the most violent he had been with me throwing me around the room really just using me as a punching bag Mm -hmm. and um up until the point where he um, tried to strangle me, and um, I don't really know how I got out of the stra- uh, out of his chokehold, but I did. And then ultimately, 
I ran outside after that and the the neighbors were there and the neighbors they didn't even want to get involved um they saw both of us they saw that his shirt was ripped they saw me you know I had blood I had I was probably looking all crazy um and they and I'm like no I need you guys to call 911 because he tried to kill me you know the ambulance showed up the police showed up and and they detained him and after this incident like you know the fact that the Lord delivered me from death because mm-hmm. I don't know how I got out of his chokehold. He was str- much stronger than me. Um, you know, he went, we went to, through the court, he went to jail. We did all of that. I didn't really have a choice. You know, the relationship had to be over at that point. Um, mm-hmm. And it didn't feel like that for me, even for months after that. It didn't feel like I, I, wanted to leave and that's the crazy part you know that's the part that I was so deep into his manipulation into his tricks that even at that point I felt like I still owed him I would say when I found Jesus was when I really knew that I deserve so much more we have episode 21 with my good friend Wanda Burnside Wanda is one of my best supporters. He was supporting my ministry before anybody else was. I've been on her radio program twice. And so I invited her to come on my show because she is such a talented lady. She is an author and an award-winning poet. We have a special episode that we recorded during Black History Month. She is an accomplished author, writer, and poet. She has a godly heritage growing up in Detroit, Michigan. In her signature storyteller style, she tells of how she served in the jail ministry with her father when she was 16. She was active. She was an active participant in the civil rights movement in the 50s and how God protected her from being kidnapped during a demonstration. She shares how God called her to write for him and inspires listeners how to use their God-given talents for the Lord. Wanda is giving away free copies of her book, Free From It. She's also the author of Don't Mess With Me, one of my favorites. So I will tell you, that Wanda's poems are so inspirational to me that I've picked one of them to put to music. So we are going to partner together. I'm going to sing and create music for her poem. I won't tell you which one it is yet. Don't want to spoil the surprise, but this will be the first place that you will hear the song. I'll be working on that in the next few months here. But the clip that I chose for uh, Wanda is the story of when she was almost killed or kidnapped and God rescued her from that. So here's Wanda. It was another time where it was close. I almost uh, was killed because of what I wrote. And so then one day, the Lord told me when I was going to be kidnapped because of what I wrote this time. And I was in the room with the people that was going to kidnap me. And uh, 
the Lord, it was a light hanging off the ceiling on the court was just a light bulb. And I was with all the black leaders in the black movement of that day in mm-hmm. the 60s. And they had come here to take me back with them. And the leaders were all the historical figures of black movement in those days in the 60s. So when I was being interviewed by them about what I was supposed to do, and they told me, uh, sister, you're going to have to change your hair to a fro, and you're not going to live here. You won't come back. You're going to be a part of the movement that we are doing, and we want you to live in California, and you're going to live with in one of the uh, prominent uh, female in the black movement, and you're going to be her secretary. And since you can write so outstanding, we want you to run our newspaper. Well, while they were talking to me, and they said, we're going to have to blindfold you so you won't know how we're meeting the other people, and then we're going to the airport. So while they were talking to me, the cord with the light bulb started to swing up from the ceiling, and it started to sway back and forth, back and forth. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden, the light bulb popped, and all these prominent, outstanding leaders, they thought that was a gunshot because that's the way they live. And when mm-hmm. that light bulb popped, the door was open to let me get in the van. And the Lord said, run, run. And I mm-hmm. ran out. They couldn't see me because the room was dark. And I ran and I went out in the alley and I passed that van. And I ran and I ran and I ran. And then I turned to corner and I went down the street. And as I was running, the Spirit of the Lord said, run and do not stop. Run mm-hmm. and do not stop. And I kept running and running. And the Lord said, there are cars out here designated for you. So run, run, run. And I ran and I ran and I cried and I cried. And then I saw a bus just appear out of nowhere. The man opened the door. He said, get in the bus room. Mm-hmm. And I got in and he said, sit down. And I sat down and he said, you're doing what you're not to do and I just froze mm-hmm. on that bus it was only like four other people but then when I look back it was like angels sent there to protect me and the bus driver turned back to me and said don't you ever do that again mm-hmm. and I got he drove me right on up to where I live I only had like six blocks to go and when I got off he I looked back at him and the bus disappeared. Eddie Caparucci is our guest from episode number 36. His book is called Going Deeper How the Inner Child Impacts Your Sexual Addiction. So we're talking about our inner child today. Do you have behaviors that point to sexual addiction? Do you need some real solutions to dealing with it? Does your husband have a porn addiction? 
Do you blame yourself for his actions? So Eddie Caparucci is a licensed and Christian therapist certified in the treatment of sexual and pornography addiction. He is the creator of the inner child recovery process for sexual pornography addictions. It is a unique therapy for treating sexual disorders and has been proven successful with large majority of individuals in his private counseling practice. This unique and interactive treatment approach empowers individuals by helping them understand why they engage in addictive behaviors. We discuss the characteristics of the nine different child types, the realities of the porn industry, and the truth about women's empowerment. It offers hope for recovery and healing. You can find his book on the AbundantLifeCounselingGA.com or the InnerChild-SexAddiction.com also on sexuallypuremen.com. So here is my conversation with Eddie. Well, probably a lot of women listening right now. Um, now on the other side of the pendulum, we have women that are in the porn industry. And you hear a lot from, you know, Pornhub and all these places mm -hmm. that, well, porn empowers women sex workers are empowered what would you say to that i put it in the myth bucket, that you myth had bucket with, yeah. right okay over here uh no it did not it did not empower anyone okay and i i have this this is this is what i say because i get many guys who will come in and say i don't see what's wrong with porn you know these women want to go and do it and you know so why shouldn't i watch it and what I say, I go, all right, tell me, tell me the time you met that 12-year-old girl and you said to her, so tell me, what do you want to be when you grow up? And she said, I want to take my clothes off in front of a camera and have sex with strange men and women. How many people do you think have said to me they've met that person? Nobody. Nobody. <laughs> now, I will tell you this, Diana. I believe, I really believe there are some of those little girls out there who, who would be like that. And you know why? Because somebody or somebody have hurt them very, very badly. Yes. And they are already starting to develop a sense that I am not important. I don't matter. There's nothing about me that is good. Now, are there some women who go into porn because they're looking to make some dollars? Yes, yeah. they are. But I still have to wonder, okay, there must be some level of brokenness there mm -hmm. in order to say, yeah, you know what? I think I'll use my body to let people objectify me, to be objectified in order to make a living. So, no, I don't think it, it and in fact, actually, I know it doesn't empower. And people who think that, just go and start reading the account of women who've been in the porn industry, who've gotten out, and listen to the story. Read the story. See the horror 
that they went through. See what the, the, the abuse they went through. See how they had to sit there and get high before they went to do any of their shoots in order just to get through it. Sure. To make it through. So no, it is a complete myth. Porn does not empower women. Porn degrades, humiliates, belittles women. That's what it does. Yeah. And, um, and it's not just vanilla porn, like, you know, back in the 80s when, you know, they had the, the TV scrambler, you know, in the middle yeah. of the night. I could see you. You, you do see squiggly lines and maybe um, some body parts here and there. But, but in those days, you had to go in secret to find, you know, those certain shops in a certain neighborhood. Now it's everywhere. Yeah, you just have to click a button. You just have to click a button. And I see that's the other thing. That's why I said to you before, you know, I think the whole situation is going to get worse because of that. And also the idea of what is porn teaching our children? And I believe that porn is teaching little boys it's okay to objectify little girls. But right. worse yet, I think it's teaching little girls it's okay to be objectified. That's, that, mm. that scares me to death. It does. Scares me to death. There's a whole new app out there. I think it's like, uh, what a fan, or they're just going, they're setting up accounts, and they're doing their own porn. That people come in to be members in that group, in that, uh, on that channel, and they pay them money for it. And yes, some of them are making lots of money. But the question becomes, in my mind, how long do you be able to do that? How long do you continue to be able to degrade yourself that way? Right. And I would also, Diana, I think behind most women who are doing that is a very manipulative man. You know, I would agree with you on that. There's there's always somebody, um, you know, in control of the puppet strings. Yeah. How many women, young women, have probably been deceived over the years by a guy who says, you know... You are so beautiful. You have a wonderful body. You are so great at sex. You know what? It would not bother me at all that if you went and had sex with other guys and think about the money that we mm -hmm. could make. And I'll guarantee that has happened more than once. Probably happened more than a hundred thousand times. Those and kind sometimes of it's it's forced. Yes, they don't exactly. have a choice. You don't have a choice. Suzanne Burns as our next guest on the show. She is on episode 23. How do you help a girl with a crisis pregnancy? Should you give money to the homeless man on the corner? We find answers to these questions and more with my guest Suzanne Burns of Foundation House Ministries. Suzanne talks candidly about the inspiration behind starting Foundation House and her own crisis pregnancy. She shares the joys and challenges of running a maternity home, loving those with drug addiction, poverty, and sexual trauma, training the ladies to run a business, and eventually seeing girls come to know the Lord Jesus. We identify 
what exactly is a poverty mindset and how to get rid of that mentality. We finish our conversation with a challenge to the church and to Christians to become more trauma-informed and reach this community with love, compassion, and understanding instead of condemnation. Suzanne's new book, The Trauma-Informed Church, is tentatively scheduled for a future release. So we will have Suzanne back on the show as soon as her book is released, but sign up for her mailing list to be notified and receive free copies of some of her other valuable resources. The Accidental Social Worker and Five Ways to Strengthen Your Ministry Without Breaking the Bank. So you can find Suzanne at her website, becharitywise.com. So here is Suzanne. Now you have experienced this firsthand. You yourself mm -hmm. had a, cr a crisis pregnancy of your own. Yeah. Yeah. I was a junior in college and um, I, I had grown up in a Christian home and was at a, a Christian school. And, um, but I was 1800 miles away from mom and dad. Ooh. So, you know, I was um, experimenting, I was testing my wings and um, come to find out I did not make very good decisions. <laughs> yeah. We all I've, make really bad choices. Yeah. Yeah. I found myself in one of those places where I was like the frog in the frying pan. I just kind of woke up one day and, and I don't know how I got there. Um, but I was um, smoking, I was drinking, I was experimenting with illegal drugs. And, um, you know, and then one day I wake up and I'm pregnant. And it's like, oh, now what? <laughs> yeah, and you're obviously pro-life at that point, Very much right? So, yeah. yeah. Very much so, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it was never a consideration for me to choose anything but to have my son. It was more a matter of like, how on earth am I going to do this? And um, I had some good family support. I had some job skills. Um, you know, I had some college, but it was still really difficult. Mm-hmm. And so over the years, I've just met so many women who, um, you know, who did not have the things that I had and I, I had it fairly easy and my, my struggles were still really, really difficult to overcome. So imagine how much worse it would be if she didn't have the things that even I had. And so my heart's always been, um, been soft towards moms and single moms, especially. Wow. Your ministry is, is so very important um, for these girls. I bet they so appreciate it. No, um, not as much as you might think. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe, maybe towards the end. <laughs> usually, usually towards the end. Yeah. They're always very grateful when they first come in. They're always in that honeymoon phase and everything is yes, Miss Suzanne. And I, I, I love you, Miss Suzanne. And I'm so thankful, Miss Suzanne. And then, you know, things shift. Yeah. We start seeing the real girl, but, um, but that's a good thing. Really. That means that we're actually getting to see her for who she is and she's getting more comfortable. And so as we start getting into the harder parts and she starts showing her, um, her not so pleasant side, that's when we know we're really getting to, to dig down, 
dig down deep and do some good healing, restorative work with her. Um, and then if she's willing, if she'll stick with it and if she'll stay with us long enough, she does reach that point where she's grateful and um, almost almost without fail, they never want to leave. They want to stay forever. And so even though they want to grow up and move out they're they're like, um, they're kind of like high school kids, you know, mm -hmm. they, they want to grow up and, and move on, but they really don't want to leave home either. On episode 24, our guest, Sheila Gregoire. If you have not heard of Sheila Gregoire yet, you will, because she is Taking the world by storm here with her new book, The Great Sex Rescue, which is right behind me on the shelf there. And she has gotten some controversial responses to her book. When you're doing something right, sometimes your enemies don't want you to succeed. I've read this book and it is fantastic. Do you feel that a satisfying love life in your marriage is out of reach for you? Does your previous abuse and trauma stop you from enjoying a fulfilling sex life? Do the teachings you've been taught all of your life in church about sex and pleasure seem one-sided? You're going to get some fresh hope and healing in that part of our lives. With Sheila Gregor, there will be something for everyone as we talk honestly and tastefully about important topics such as women's pleasure, the truth about consent, what the Bible really says about not defrauding your husband, porn addiction, purity culture, modesty, practical help for newlyweds, and how to heal after abuse. So this is one of the books that I will give away, just like all of the other guests. If you share the episode and tell us what your takeaway is. Um, this is an uncomfortable topic for a lot of people, but it's a necessary topic. So get over your discomfort and listen to her podcast episode. And we don't use any graphic descriptions. Um, we try and keep it PG, and so don't be afraid. You could probably invite one of your, your teenagers to listen with you. Or maybe, or maybe somebody that's getting married soon. So you can find her podcast called Bear Marriage on her website, To Love, Honor, and Vacuum. Dot com. You can also find her, her book, The Great Sex Rescue. She also has some fabulous courses that would be very, very helpful to you. So check all of those out. And so here is my conversation with Sheila Gregoire. Most people don't believe that somebody can be raped in marriage. Tell, tell us more about consent that you just mentioned. Yeah. So, you know, one of our big things that we found um, is that our Christian books do not address consent or marital rape at all. Or if they do, they address it in a really bad way. So 
we, um, we surveyed 20,000 women, but we also looked at the 10 best-selling marriage books and the six iconic sex books. And then three of the best-selling marriage books just didn't talk about sex. So we excluded them from our study. So we had 13, um, Christian evangelical books on sex and marriage. And then we looked at the best-selling secular book, which is John Gottman's seven principles for making marriage work. And of those books, only one of them had a robust conversation about consent. And I bet you could guess which one it is. <laughs> but John Gottman, the secular book, dealt with consent really well. Yeah, the Christian books did not. Now, Boundaries in Marriage does talk about boundaries really well and how um, it isn't okay, you know, to... Um, to insist on something and it's, and it is okay to take sex off the table for certain reasons. So boundaries and marriage certainly does talk about that, but what it doesn't talk about explicitly is what consent actually looks like in marriage. Um, but it did do a fairly good job. Like of all the books, it did the best job. So I don't mean to say that they were all terrible. Um, but in general, we just don't even use the word consent. And in fact, a lot of books that we looked at actually had incidences of marital rape and they weren't even called anything bad. Like Willard Harley in His Needs, Her Needs was talking about this one guy, 32-year-old executive who complains that his wife has no libido. And he says, you know, I feel like I'm always begging her or even raping her, but I can't help it. I need to make love. Hmm. And there's no commentary <laughs> that raping your wife is not okay. Like raping your wife is not okay. And you can't, you can't just throw that line out there and then not say anything about it. Like just leave it hanging. Like you should be at least saying something like, hey, if you feel like you're raping your wife, you probably are and you should stop <laughs> because sex and rape don't feel like the same thing. Well, the but churches he, out there teaching uh, from their pulpits that when you get married, your body belongs to your husband, uh -huh. and but not so much about the other way around. You know, the husband's body belongs to the wife. It was, it was always, you know, you don't, you don't have control over your body. That is so damaging. Yeah, and it's really a misuse of First Corinthians seven. You know, because First Corinthians 7, 3 to 5 say, it says that the husband has to fulfill his marital duties to his wife. So actually, the husband's duties are mentioned first, <laughs> which is interesting. <laughs> you know, and the wife has to fulfill her marital duties to her husband. And the wife's body does not belong to her, but also to the husband. And the husband's body does not belong to him, but also to the wife. And do not deprive each other, except by mutual consent and for a time that you can devote yourself to prayer and fasting. So that, that's what that passage says. And it's been used to tell women that you can't say no to sex because your body belongs to your husband. But that's a total misuse of that passage. Because when Paul was writing this in Roman times, husbands had absolute authority over their wife's bodies to the extent that they could murder their wives and not be prosecuted for it. Like you were allowed to murder your wife. And Paul turns around and says in that context, hey, guys, your wife has authority over your body in the same way. Like you have no more authority over her body than she has over yours. And that's the only time that Paul specifically talks about authority in marriage. Mm -hmm. And it's totally equal. Mm. So, you know, Paul is giving her authority over his body, which was totally revolutionary at that time. And the whole point of 1 Corinthians 7 is that it's mutual is that sex is something which is mutual and life-giving. It's not talking about one-sided intercourse. 
Because if sex is mutual, then that means that her needs need to matter. And sex where her needs don't matter is no longer intimate. So it's not real sex. Mm-hmm. You know, like, like what the Bible's, the Bible's take is that sex is something which is life-giving, which brings you together, which builds your relationship. But sex where one person is using the other with absolutely no consideration of what they're feeling, that's not biblical sex. That's using someone and taking something, and that's not right. And so it's a total misuse of 1 Corinthians 7. All right. Our next guest was from episode 42, Peyton Garland. Now, the first question I asked her was if her parents were football fans. (laughs) And she said yes. She gives us a very personal and informative conversation about obsessive compulsive disorder. She suffers from all four kinds of OCD. She believes that religious trauma was the catalyst to her diagnosis. She dispels the myths, talks about treatments and coping strategies. So her book is called Not So By Myself, which you can get on Amazon. So here is part of our conversation that I had with Peyton. So you're our OCD expert today. I'm I'm glad (laughs) to have you talk about this topic because, you know, most people only have a reference of OCD from TV shows, you know, like Monk. I love Howie Mandel. I mean, he's famous (laughs) for not not shaking hands and not touching doorknobs, you know. Um, Love him to pieces. Um, I mean, I have a joke about being OCD about something or insisting that something be done a certain way, but that isn't the same as the debilitating mental illness, is it? Right, exactly. So in Monk, he has one of the four branches of OCD, which is called contamination OCD. And you can have one branch, you can have two branches. I personally have all four of them, lucky me. Uh, so, so there's contamination OCD. There's harm OCD where you're afraid if there's a knife on the kitchen counter, like what if, what if you accidentally stab the dog or what if you stab the baby behind you? Or if you're driving down the road, what if you ran somebody off the road and you don't know it? Do you need to turn your car around to check on them? So that's that's harm. So that's just oh, wow. one of the four branches along with contamination. Then there is also um, mental thoughts and taboo rituals. So that's another one. It's also known as religious OCD. So my strongest one is religious OCD. And so what that means is, I guess before I dive in too deep, I'll explain the physical science. Because once you talk about the physical science of it, it's not just the symmetry OCD, which is the fourth one where it's, oh, everything has to be clean. I have to straighten all the picture frames. There has to be an even number of napkins on the table. So the physical science of all four of these branches is my adrenaline glands, when fight or flight kicks in, like when you have a thought that you don't like and you can just kind of shake it off and say, oh, that was weird or that's not me. With people with OCD, your adrenaline glands react to that thought and your body physically experiences the fight or flight. So the heart rate goes up, the head feels kind of dizzy, and you're in a panic mode. And you can't let go of the idea that that thought may or may not be true. And then what happens with people with OCD is their neurotransmitters fire faster than the average brain. 
you have a thought you don't want, like, what if I ran somebody off the road? My heart will start racing. My head will start spinning. And you have these neuron transmitters going, hey, that might be real. Hey, we might have a problem. Hey, you probably should be scared. Hey, your brain might be right about that. And it's just this constant mental exhaustion. And, and it's, it is very debilitating. So I, I have a wow. friend of mine who lives in Britain. I do have a friend overseas. Um, she spends an average of six to eight hours in the day, not at night, um, in her bed, because getting out of bed with OCD is, is that intimidating and that scary for her. It, it can physically keep people in the bed. It, it's what drove me to seek Christian counseling and therapy. And the reason OCD can, can crop up so quickly is it tends to be genetic. So it's something you're usually born with. But a traumatic experience, typically in children, will trigger it. Mm. And my church culture, all the rules, constantly living in fear that I wasn't pleasing God, truly afraid I was going to hell because I didn't say the prayer the right way at the right time. Did it have to be in front of people? Was it supposed to be by myself? Religion triggered my OCD. And so that's why religious OCD is what's so prominent in my life. So you hate wow. to say it this way, but, but church abuse, spiritual abuse literally triggered a mental disorder. So mm. it took me a few years to, to work through not having bitterness with the church for separate, you know, separating my experience from every other church. And that's something that I have to, you know, I talk a lot about giving grace and getting grace and I have to do the same for church. Now I can't label every church is a spiritually abusive campus. Thank you for being a part of my first year on this podcast. The listeners, as well as my fantastic guests. I hope that you will tell others about it so I can help more people. Though we still have the same promotion, I'll be giving a copy of any of the books from any of my guests or any of my musical guests, I will I'll provide a music download of your choice that you have to share this podcast episode or share the individual podcasts of your favorite guests and tell me what your takeaway was from your favorite guest. Hey, let them know the blessing that they are to you. I work very hard to get you the best guests on this show to help you. And again, I plan on making the podcast better next year. Also, if you could leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Listen Notes so I can hear your feedback on the podcast. All of the guests' links will be in the show notes. The show notes will be pretty long just like the first episode, just like part one. And we'll have their direct link to their podcast interview. So I'd love to hear what you think. Next week, we will have a new guest on the podcast. And then I will continue my story, my abuse story, and the lessons that I've learned from it. So be sure to come back next week and the following week. I will also be featuring more music that I'm recording 
Hopefully you enjoyed the music that I had on the show. And I look forward to featuring the other songs for you. So until then, God bless you and you have yourselves a great week. Thank you for listening to the Wounds of the Faithful podcast. If this episode has been helpful to you, please hit the subscribe button and tell a friend. You can connect with us at dswministries.org, where you'll find our blog along with our Facebook, Twitter, and our YouTube channel links. Hope to see you next week.